So good to see your smiling eyes. <laughs> Welcome, ladies online. Can't wait again to see you and see your smiling faces also. Uh, it seems of late that all of the ladies we have been studying, have you noticed that they all seem to do something bad? So, <laughs> so I was so thankful when we got to doing that that has done everything right. She's like a breath of fresh air. And she is called just Manoah's wife. But I know that God knows her name because he used her mightily, just like he can use each one of us. Even though we might feel like God may not know our name, he does, trust me, he does. Because he loves and cares for all of us. So let's pray before we open God's word, amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the story of Manoah's wife and the inspiration that she, she is to all of us. And so I would ask that as we study about her and we glean those things which you would have us to learn from her life, that we would be able to apply it to our own circumstances, our own lives. And so we love you, Lord. We are so thankful for you. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. All right, so to set the stage, as you know, Israel, all through the book of Judges, it seems like every chapter starts with, and Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so this story takes place at one such time, and we're going to begin in Judges, chapter 13, verse 1. And it says, again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And that always makes my heart ache. It says, again. You remember what they always did? It says, they would, they would do evil. They would, uh, they would follow pagan gods. They would do the things that other, you know, that the, the Gentiles would do. They wouldn't follow after God's laws or anything like that. And they would become wicked. And then the Lord would send a trial their way so that they would turn back to him. So they did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines who oppressed them for 40 years. And Whenever they've been oppressed, they pray, and because God cares for them and he loves them, he will always send help along their way. So in those days, a man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in the town of Zorah. His wife was unable to become pregnant, and they had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, even though you have been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now, back in those days, when a woman was barren, it was almost like, you know, what did she do to, to anger God because he won't give her children or something? And so it was almost seen as a curse, even though that wasn't true. And it didn't matter if it was the guy's fault that she couldn't have children. They always blamed the woman. And so she didn't have children. She had to have been very sad. Uh, they were a family of means. They were blessed uh, financially, but they had no children. They had nobody to leave their inheritance to. 
And so out of the blue, the angel of the Lord, perhaps Gabriel, remember him, he's the one that told Mary that she was going to have a child. He's the one that told Elizabeth that she was going to have a child. Perhaps he was also the angel, one of the angels that told Sarah that she was going to have a child. So anyway, so the angel of the Lord tells Manoah's wife she's going to have a son. However, there's going to be some conditions to this pregnancy. Verse 4 and 5 then tells us, so be careful. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and his hair must never be cut, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. So on the surface, it kind of sounds like, okay, these are really strange conditions. I mean, normally you would say, okay, you need to take your vitamins and stuff like that. Instead, okay, don't drink any alcoholic beverage. Of course, now today we know that that's bad when you're pregnant, of course. So he says, number one, don't drink wine or any alcoholic drink. In other versions, it will actually say, don't eat anything from the vine. And then the second one was, you cannot eat anything forbidden by law. You remember they had very strict dietary uh, restrictions, you know, like you can't have pork, you can't have shellfish, and there's a whole list. If you want to go through the Levitical law, uh, more power to you, but there was a lot... (laughs) There's a lot of regulations there. And then the weird one, you must not cut his hair, ever. So he was going to have really long hair. Can you imagine if you never cut your hair? I mean, I've seen some where, you know, their hair is dragging on the ground. So anyway, that's what she was supposed to do. Why was this going to be such a big deal? The son is to be a Nazarite. So what is a Nazarite? Well, in order to find out, we've got to go to number 6, 1 through 8. And it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If any of the people, either men or women, take the special vow of a Nazarite, Setting themselves apart to the Lord in a specific way, they must give up wine and other alcoholic drinks. They must not use vinegar made from wine or from other alcoholic drinks. They must not drink fresh grape juice, and they must not eat grapes or raisins. As long as they are bound by their Nazarite vow, they are not allowed to eat or drink anything that comes from a grapevine. I think, we're boy, they're really pushing this. Not even the grape skins or seeds. They must never cut their hair throughout the time of their vow, for they are holy and set apart to the Lord until the time of their vow has been fulfilled. They must let their hair grow long. They must not go near a dead body during their the entire period of their vow to the Lord, even if the dead person is their own father, mother, brother, or sister. They must not defile themselves, for the hair on their head is a symbol of their separation to God. This requirement applies as long as they are set apart to the Lord. Wow, that's a mouthful, isn't it? So basically what it is is an outward expression of the dedication that they have in their heart. I kind of liken it to perhaps baptism. Baptism is an outward expression of the fact that we have become believers in Jesus Christ. So in this case, God was very serious 
about the work he wanted to do through Manoah and his wife's son. So much so that she was to hold the Nazarite vow while she was pregnant herself, something she was, of course, more than willing to do for the sake of her son and the will of God. So let's continue in Judges now. Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 6 and 7 says, The woman ran and told her husband, A man of God appeared to me. He looked like one of God's angels, terrifying to see. I didn't ask where he was from, and he didn't tell me his name, but he told me, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son. You must not drink wine and any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food, for your son will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from the moment of his birth until the day of his death. So the woman runs to her husband with the news and recounts everything that happened, and she had to have been excited. I mean, she was being told she's going to have a child, and I love that she didn't question that angel. You remember what Sarah did when the angel told her? She laughed. Yeah, she laughed. She didn't question. She just said, okay, I'm going to have a baby. Cool. Verse 8, then Manoah prayed to the Lord saying, Lord, please let the man of God come back to us again and give us more instructions about the son who is to be born. Now, Manoah prayed that he could get more information. I mean, this was extraordinary news, but he was thinking, I need more input. I need more information. This is scary business. And besides, you know, maybe my wife got it wrong. Who knows? But it kind of of tells us that he didn't quite trust what his wife was saying. Then verse 9 continues. God answered Manoah's prayer, and the angel of God appeared once again to his wife as she was sitting in the field. But her husband, Manoah, was not with her. So she quick, quickly ran and told her husband, the man who appeared to me the other day is here again. Manoah ran back with his wife and asked, are you the man who spoke to my wife? I love it. He questions his wife again. <laughs> are you the man who spoke to my wife the other day? Yes, he replied, I am. So Manoah asked him, When your words come true, what kind of rules should govern the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord replied, Be sure your wife follows the instructions I gave her. She must not eat grapes or raisins, drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, or eat any forbidden food. So God answered Manoah's prayer, and the angel appeared again. And she, and of course, Manoah's wife ran to get him tell him that the angel was in the field. They ran back together. Manoah got his confirmation that the story was true. And they were to raise the child as a Nazarite. All right, so now, verses 15 through 22. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please stay here until we can prepare a young goat for you to eat. I will stay the angel of the Lord replied, but I will not eat anything. However, you may prepare a burnt offering as a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, I thought this was interesting that he wasn't going to eat. So, do angels eat? I would say sometimes. Remember, he, when angels visited Abraham, they ate, and they were actually angels. But an angel truly is a spirit being. So, I would say maybe sometimes, depending... God can give them human bodies so that they 
would need sustenance, but in this case, it appears as though he was a spirit in a sense. So he says, Manoah didn't realize it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah asked the angel of the Lord, what is your name? For when all this comes true, we want to honor you. Why do you ask my name? The angel of the Lord replied. It is too wonderful for you to understand. Now I find that very interesting also because the angel didn't want to be worshipped. He goes, no, 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 you don't worship me. Because see, Manoah said, I want to honor you when all this comes true. And the angel basically said, no, I'm not even going to tell you my name because I don't want you worshiping or honoring me in any way. This is all God's doing here. I have nothing to do with it. I'm only the messenger. It says, then Manoah took a young goat and a grain offering and offered it on a rock as a sacrifice to the Lord. And as Manoah and his wife watched, the Lord did an amazing thing. As the flames from the altar shot up toward the sky, the angel of the Lord ascended in the fire. Then Manoah and his wife, when, when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell with their faces to the ground. The angel did not appear again to Manoah and his wife, and Manoah finally realized it was the angel of the Lord. And he said to his wife, we will certainly die, for we have seen God. Of course, no, you didn't see God. You saw an angel. But this is fascinating to me because the wife took everything at face value. She wasn't scared. She wasn't worried. However, her husband asked so many questions, and it almost appeared as though he needed reassurance. Excuse me. So didn't he pray for more information, and now he's needing more reassurance? And his wife were going, no, no worries. But he's saying, we're all going to die. But what does his wife say? He says, if the Lord were going to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted our burnt offering and our grain offering. He wouldn't have appeared to us and told us this wonderful thing and done these miracles. She was so practical, wasn't she? It's like, what are you so worried about? I mean, if he was going to kill us, you think he was going to tell us we were going to have a son and to raise him as a Nazarite? I mean, this is just common sense. But apparently, Manoah is kind of panicking. And then verse 24, when her son was born, she named him Samson, and the Lord blessed him as he grew up. They named him Samson. And we all know that story of Samson and Delilah, don't we? I mean, Samson didn't do everything right. But in the end, do you remember what he did? He destroyed the Philistines. They were all in that uh, arena or temple or whatever it was. They were worshiping. And, and Samson's hair began to grow again. And God showed favor upon him. And he made the whole arena crumble with the Philistines in it. And so the Israelites were delivered from the Philistines. Now we're going to read another passage, though, that kind of gives us a little insight into the difficulties they had with their son, Samson. Judges 14, 1 through 4. One day when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistines, Philistine women caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. <laughs> his father and mother objected. Isn't there one, even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites that you could marry, they asked? Why must you go to the pagan Philistines and find a wife? Now, that does tell us a lot about Manoah 
and his wife that they wanted fo- they wanted to follow the law of God here. They weren't supposed to marry outside the Jewish faith, just like we're not supposed to marry outside the Christian faith. And they said, can't you find a nice Jewish woman? And Samson had his eye on her, and we know how that happened, right, with Delilah and all. Then verse 4 says, his father and mother didn't realize the Lord was at work in this creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at that time. So God still had a plan, even though Samson was going to get into the flesh and fall for Delilah, get his hair cut off, lose his strength because he broke the Nazarite vow, even though it wasn't really him, but he let himself be led into that. And then he was blinded. So it's kind of tragic. But God had a plan in it. So what can we learn here? I think the main thing is that God cares. He cared about Manoah. He cared about Manoah's wife. He appeared. He sent an angel, and an angel appeared to her and said, you're going to have a son. And that had to have given her great joy. But we do hear that a lot, don't we? God cares. It sometimes gets thrown around like a common statement. Is it true? Of course it is. God cares a lot, but there's so much more to that. God's care is the purest form of his love for us. In other words, God cares for us, and him showing that care is his love for us. 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us, Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. I'm sure you have read this verse before, seen it in a uh, scripture promise, seen it on plaques, all sorts of things. And we probably have no reason to doubt this. However, this is much harder to put into practice, isn't it? To really grasp what that means to have God care for us. See, God cared that Manoah's wife was saddened over the fact that she couldn't have children. Psalms 50, <clears throat> excuse me, 56.8 tells us that God keeps our tears in a bottle and that he has kept count of our tossing and turning. That's like when you're trying to sleep and you toss and you turn. He keeps count. He knows that we go through difficulties and that we don't sleep at night. He knows that we are saddened by many things, wounded even. God cares deeply. But how do we transfer that from our head and to our heart? How do we truly understand God's love for us? And there are five steps, I think, that perhaps help us with that. And it has to do with our growth in him. The first one is believe in Jesus. I know that seems so basic. Acts 16.31 tells us believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So I always like to start with the basics. So the first step in understanding God's care and love for us is the gospel message, isn't it? I mean, that in itself shows how much God cares for us, that he sent his son to die on the cross so that he could have a relationship with us. That shows a great amount of care. He wants to be with us for eternity. So he went through great lengths to do that. But then when we received Jesus, what happened? I know how it happened for me. I was reading the Bible. Up until that point, when I would read the Bible, it just sounded like a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. 
You know, I didn't really understand. Sound like some really weird stories and all. But one day I was reading Matthew. And I was learning about who this Jesus was. And then the Holy Spirit just shot into my brain and said, it's all true. And I'm going, whoa, that is true? Are you kidding me? And from that point on, I believed. And then after the belief, I received him as my Savior. See, you have to act on that belief. So you're saying, okay, I've done that. I received Jesus Christ into my heart. What's next? Well, Jesus must be Lord. You know, he has to be your Savior in Lord in order to get all these benefits here. John 13, 13 says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. I love that. So I am. He is Lord. He will always be Lord. And someday, every knee will bow before him and declare him as Lord. But... What does that mean for us personally? Is Jesus actually your Lord? I looked it up, and Lord means an appellation for a person or deity who has authority, control, or power over others, a master. You see, that's what we need to make Jesus in our hearts and in our minds. He needs to be, essentially, our master. We need to trust him. Of course, when we first receive Christ, we don't do this very well, but it's a growth process. You know, we start out as baby Christians and we grow. And it takes a whole lifetime to be complete, isn't it? However, as we grow in our faith, the easier it is to relinquish our lives to Jesus, which leads us to our next step, and that is we have to nurture that faith. Matthew 17, 20 tells us, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So, the faith of a mustard seed. In other words, very, very small. A mustard seed is extremely tiny. It's like the size of a pinhead. All we have to do is have a little tiny bit of faith and God does the rest. And an important note, though, a seed doesn't stay a seed, does it? When does that seed begin to grow? Well, when it's planted. When we receive Christ, we go from a dead, dry seed that has no life in it, and then we're planted and watered by the Holy Spirit. And that's when we begin to grow. So... First, we're this little tiny seed. Kind of looks like a pea or something. But we are nothing but a little round thing waiting for planting. In other words, you're an unbeliever. And then the seed sprouts. And now you become a new believer. And it's that story of the, the sower where the seeds fall on fertile ground or rocky ground or the birds come and, and eat the seeds. See, that's the story of the gospel message. Some people are, will receive Christ, their, their seed will, will fall on fertile ground, and that's the, the believers that begin to grow, and, and they, they have a hunger for the word. Can we expect that tiny plant to produce fruit yet? Perhaps. God can do amazing things even through young believers. But as a general rule, they need to grow a little bit 
understand their faith a little bit, understand uh, what they've just done. That's why we do the, the new believers classes, right? And then you grow into a bunch of beautiful little plants. And from this point on, the plant grows and grows depending on the nutrients in the soil. And I kind of like it in this too, you know, how much effort are you putting into it? Are you allowing yourself to be watered and fertilized on a regular basis by getting into his word, by prayer, by, you know, attending uh, Bible studies, learning more about your savior? So the conclusion is, if we want to be able to live by faith, we must allow our faith to grow. We need to nurture that faith. And we do that by allowing the Holy Spirit to work, listening to his voice instead of your own. I had something funny happen this morning. Um, I told the, the morning class and they just laughed. They thought, oh, of course, of course she wouldn't ever do that. But I was stuck in traffic. So I, I was on the 110 and stuck in traffic, and I'm going, okay, I'm going to be late if I don't get off the freeway. So I get off at Carson instead of Torrance, and then I got in the wrong lane. I had to turn right, and so now I'm going south on Figueroa, I think it is, and I'm going, okay, this isn't working. So I go, oh, here's a left turn lane. I'll do a U-turn, and just as I'm about ready to do that U-turn, I see it say, no U-turn, and I'm going, but Lord, you know I'm, I'm late, right? <laughs> so I look around. And I do the U-turn really fast. And then I go, ah. the Lord was saying, don't do it, don't do it. Thankfully, he didn't have a policeman sitting there to give me a ticket or something, for which I am thankful. But I still said, you know what, Lord, I'm so sorry. I was listening to that still, I didn't listen to that still small voice. And after I did the U-turn, then I had to repent. So, you know what, I would have been a lot better off if I would just gone down to the light and then did a U-turn. But no, you know, I was being impatient. But you see, that's that still small voice that the Lord is saying, you know what, go down to the light. Oh, no, this will be much quicker, you know. It wouldn't have been a lot. It wouldn't have been a lot quicker if there had been a policeman sitting there. I'm now getting a ticket, and I have to explain while I'm late to Bible study. You know, so you know that's what. But that's just a small example of the choices that we are faced every single day, isn't it? We always have that still small voice. The Holy Spirit is so gentle, saying, "Don't do that. Don't do that." Sometimes we listen. Sometimes we don't. When we don't. The Lord usually lets us suffer the consequences. But it's that still, small voice that we must listen to. And our faith will grow, perhaps slower than you would like, but it will grow. And we must surrender. Another one of those S words, submission or surrender, which leads us to our next point. Matthew 16, 24, when Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Basically what that means is you need to give your life and surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what that means. I mean, you're probably thinking, oh, I'm not sure I want to do that. Trust me, it's worth it because he is the God of the universe. He knows everything about you. So surrender is a companion to Jesus being Lord, but it goes so much deeper. And I know I beat this drum about surrender a lot. That's because I am so stubborn that 
The Lord had to beat it into me practically. I mean, he let me suffer through so many things because I was just so proud and I wanted to do things my way that the Lord finally had to beat it out of me in a sense. And, you know, it went through, I went through a lot of heartache and pain, but finally I go, oh, I got it, Lord. But what does surrender truly mean? The dictionary states that surrender means to cease resistance to an enemy or opponent and submit to their authority. So in most cases, God is our opponent when we are constantly resisting him. He's never our enemy, but he can be our opponent if we make it that way. But oftentimes, we will not surrender to God, but we surrender to so many other things. You may not think of them that way, but we do surrender sometimes to people, sometimes to governments, our own desires and appetites, drugs, alcohol, other addictions. How about us surrendering to fear or fear of dying or sickness? See, it's whatever God takes, whatever takes God's place is the thing or person that you have surrendered to other than God. For me, I realized that I would rather surrender to the one who has control over all those things. Of course, it took me a long time to get that through my hard head, but I did surrender to him finally. And now I could rest knowing that whatever happens to me, even the bad things that God knows what is happening and is working behind the scenes. Just like Manoah and his wife knew that God was working behind the scenes and delivering Israel through their son, Samson. Even though, you know, their knucklehead son is going, I want the Philistine woman. And they're going, no, you need to find a nice Jewish woman. But they knew that God was doing something. They had to trust him, which leads us to our final point. Trusting God. Trust that God cares. Psalms 112, 6 through 7, 6 and 7 says, For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. So how can we stay firm? Now that we have surrendered to him, we don't have to be afraid of bad news. Why? Because we know that everything that happens to us God is going to know about it. We must trust that he's got it, and that will give us tremendous peace. No matter how bad it is, we know that God has got a plan and a purpose in everything. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4 tells us, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He is our rock. He is unmovable. He will always be there. He will never change. Remember what Manoah's wife said when Manoah was afraid that they would die because they saw an angel? She said that if God wanted to kill us, he wouldn't have sent an angel and told us that wonderful news. In other words, Manoah, stop worrying God always has a plan. So let's look at these five points again. How do we understand that God cares for us? 
Well, first, believe in him. That's the basics, right? Make him your Lord, your master. Nurture your faith. Plant yourself in rich soil. Surrender to him. You got to surrender to someone. And then trust in him because he is so worthy of that trust. So it's not said whether or not Manoah and his wife were around when Samson was captured by the Philistines or the events thereafter. But I know she didn't flinch when an angel appeared to, in front of her and told her she was going to have a child, a son. She didn't flinch when this angel went up through the flames. She didn't flinch when, when Manoah is saying, all is lost, we're going to die. She says, oh, God's got this. Her trust in the Lord was unshakable. And I love that about her. And I always seem to learn my greatest lessons through my own circumstances. And uh, recently, we, well, we used to have two labs. Jeff has talked about them uh, in the studies upon occasions because, you know, he adores his labs. We had a chocolate lab and we have a, a yellow lab. And we lost our chocolate lab about two months ago now. And so we decided to get a new puppy. And as I was pondering all this about God's care, I'm going, wow, I am just like this cute little puppy. Uh, I know, isn't she adorable? She's a little uh, Aussie mix. And oh my goodness, is she a little whippersnapper. Oh my, she looks very cute. Uh, but trust me, uh, she's, she's got uh, my temperament. She's a little stinker. So... Anyway, I got her last Thursday, and at first she was so afraid. She didn't know what was happening. And I go, isn't that just like us? It's like at first we are so fearful when we don't know the Lord, when we don't know what's going to happen in our life. We are so fearful, aren't we? It's like we're afraid of everything. We're afraid of getting sick, of death, of people around us dying. I mean, we have fears galore. And that's kind of what she reminded me of. And I would pick her up and she would just bury her head right here in my neck. Like, I don't want to see the world. It's too scary, you know. But after a while, she began to realize that I was caring for her. I was loving her. I was making sure she, she went outside to go potty when she needed to go. And I made sure she had water and food. I was caring for her. And I'm going, wow, Lord, that's exactly how you treat us. That's why Jesus said that we had to be like children when we came to him, so caring and trusting. He wants us to trust him like a child would or like a puppy would, so to speak. Isaiah 54.10 tells us, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, said the Lord who has compassion on you. So no matter what, God can't be moved and he will always have compassion on us because he cares for us. He cares about everything that we're going through, the difficulties, the joys. He wants to be a part of your everyday lives. We kind of think of God as this huge being in the sky, which he is, but he's also so personal that he loves to hear from his kids. He loves to hear from you. So whenever you have a care, when you can't sleep at night and you're tossing and turning, 
just talk to the Lord. He loves to hear from you. He never sleeps. And he will have compassion on, on all of us. And he will never depart from us. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you never depart from us and you care so much for us, Lord. I just thank you for all the wonderful examples that you give us in your word of what to do, what not to do. But I thank you for Manoah's wife. She was a woman of no name, but just like so many of us, Lord, you know all of our names. And we are thankful for that. So help us to trust in you. Help us to build our faith in you. Help us to make you our Lord. Help us to surrender. All those things, Lord, are the, the, the recipe for being successful with you. And that is all you ask us for us to just pick up our cross and to follow after you, Lord. To give up whatever we think we need because you know us so much better than we know ourselves and you know what will make us happy. And I thank you for that. So we love you, Lord. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.